All right, good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Draft Board Podcast. My name is David Song, and I'm sitting across from Tyson Workington, and we hope you're having a great day wherever, or a great night for that matter, wherever you're listening in from. And Tyson, before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to all of those who tuned in to our first episode, Wentz, Watt, and Winning. We've got now 22 listeners and 10 followers on Spotify, and as modest as those numbers obviously are, we will take it. Yeah, no, that's super exciting. I'm super happy that we got all our listeners out there. Hopefully we can continue to put out some really great content, and uh, you'll keep listening. Indeed, and thank you guys for giving us a chance, sticking with us. Again, we, we know we're starting humble, but... Humble we, beginnings. Humble beginnings is a hashtag I used on our Twitter page, and I probably will again, but in all honesty, we appreciate the love, yeah. and we appreciate your support. Now, as we've said before, we're going to start all of our episodes, or at least most of them, with a feel-good story of the week, essentially. And Tyson, our feel-good story for this week is very appropriate given that International Women's Day was just yesterday, because the NBA has announced that on March 24th, TSN will have a all-female broadcast crew calling the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, super exciting. Um, yeah, it's really great for the Raptors to be able to do this, get some lovely ladies into the broadcasting. We need to see more women in sports build that women's brand, build that women's game. And with basketball, it's going to be so great to see these ladies do some amazing work and, and do the broadcast. So. I'm excited for it. I'll be tuning in. And yeah, David, can you give us a rundown on who some of these ladies are? Absolutely. So yeah, let's let's go right into it. We've got Megan McPeak on play-by-play, Kia Nurse on color, mm-hmm. Kayla Gray working the sideline, Kate Burness and Amy Audibert in the studio doing analysis for this game. Now, let's, let's meet each of them in turn. And we'll start, of course, with our play-by-play uh, person, McPeak. So, She's actually should be a somewhat familiar face to Toronto Raptors fans because beginning in 2015, she served for three years as the play-by-play voice of Raptors 905, the oh. Toronto Raptors G League affiliate. Oh. And she is still affiliated with the G League, calling games for the Washington Wizards affiliate named, and like we said before the episode, we're going to have to stay on this point for a little while here because are you ready folks the washington wizards g league affiliate team is called the capital city go go what a name capital city go hyphen go i I don't understand (laughs) i i have yet to do any research onto the origin of this name because it is peripheral to the topic here tonight but tyson my goodness yeah there's some really interesting names out there in some minor league uh, affiliate teams I know the baseball has a ton of really interesting, really weird names, and I guess the G League also has some. I would not have expected a team to be named the Go-Go. It, I hope it's something that pertains to Washington, D.C., or wherever the team is located, because, my goodness, that makes no sense. No, not at all, and you know what? I think it, I think it's actually surpassed some of my minor league favorites. Uh, minor league baseball, this is the Akron Rubber Ducks and the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Oh. Like, those are some pretty A1 names, but Capital City Go-Go really does take the cake. Anyways, back to the actual topic at hand. Of course. You know, Megan McPeak, like I said, she calls games for the Go-Go. She also calls games for the WNBA's Washington Mystics, so... She's an experienced play-by-play commentator, graduate of Humber College. She's actually an Ontarian. Oh. And so we are really going all in on that Canadian influence as well, which is a great touch. Let's go. Canada represent. Absolutely. And speaking of Canada represent, Kia Nurse does that fairly well in her own right. She is a WNBA all-star, made that team with the New York Liberty last year. Currently, she plays point guard for the Phoenix Mercury her older brother is Darnell Nurse, defenseman for the Edmonton Oilers. Her uncle is Donovan McNabb, former NFL quarterback. And, you know, she's she's a, she's great for the game. She's one of, you know, Canada's more notable athletes uh, in this sport for sure. And I'm, I look forward to her insights. Yeah, it'll be good. You know, she's got a lot of athletic background in her history. 
She's definitely a tremendous athlete. She went to University of Connecticut, if I don't believe, if I believe, and she was exceptional there as well. So she's definitely got a lot of talent, and she's been on TSN doing some of the panel work when it comes to Raptors basketball. So she knows her stuff, and I'm excited to see what she has to offer for the broadcast. And rounding out the crew, of course, are Kayla Gray, a typical uh, TSN anchor. Uh, she's a familiar face if you watch the network. Caper Ness is fairly iconic at this point. She usually works a sideline for the Raptors and a variety of, of, of other things, and you know they're, they're fun to watch. And, and Amy Audibert uh, might be the smallest or perhaps the lesser known name among this group, but she is an analyst for Raptors 905 as well, and so she's got some experience to draw on, of course. Now, before we move on from this, Tyson, I just wanted to help our viewers get some context for how significant it is. Sure. Because if you watch sports, you realize that there aren't many women in the booth, mm. and especially not doing play-by-play -play commentary. How rare is it? Well, Megan McPeak will become just the second woman ever to do play-by-play -play for an NBA regular season game. Mm -hmm. The first to do it was a lady named Leandra Riley Lardner, who called a Brooklyn Nets-Philadelphia 76ers game in 1988. 1988? 88. It does not happen often. And you know what? Interestingly enough, the NFL has a similar trend. They've only had two women do regular season play-by-play. Beth Moens uh, found herself on Monday Night Football, September 2017. The the only other woman to do it, Gail Sierra's 1987. Wow, it's been too long. It's been too long. We need to see more women in the broadcast booth for far too long. And you know, the more you think about it, obviously journalism is something that is open to both men and women, but specifically broadcasting, because you know, for those who don't know, I I was able to try my hand at play-by-play -play broadcasting last semester in Indianapolis, and then my partner Josh Ayan and I, shout out to you Josh if you're listening to this, but we got to call the IUPUI Jaguars, both men's and women's basketball teams, and we, we were lucky enough to see the IUPUI Lady Jags win their first ever Horizon League championship back in March 2020, 48 or 72 hours before COVID shut down North America, but I make that point just to say that as I've gotten more into this field and as I've really paid attention to it it's as you said there really aren't that many women and at some point we have to ask ourselves why this is the case because broadcasting and commentating is again another arena where it should be right you know it should be just as open to women as it is to men yeah the i don't believe that there's a significant gap in talent between those who are currently in broadcasting and the women who are wanting to get into broadcasting but don't have the opportunity so i think that what the Raptors are doing here by announcing an all-female crew, it's giving that opportunity to qualified females who are ready to make that jump into broadcasting more regularly. So I'm glad they're getting the opportunity, and I hope we see more women in broadcasting. Yeah, and the good news is, though, on the NBA side, that women have at least gained some recent prominence as analysts. Not so much play-by-play -play commentators, but analysts. If you don't know who Doris Burke is, you probably don't watch basketball, but you know she is fantastic at her job, mm -hmm. and she is one of the more talented people employed by ESPN and ABC, for sure. She's great at what she does. You've also got a few other names. You've got Stephanie Reddy with the Charlotte Hornets, Ann Myers with the Phoenix Suns, Kara Lawson with the Washington Wizards, and Sarah Kustuk with the Brooklyn Nets. All four of these ladies have also performed analysis for the teams that I specified. So we're at least getting there. And, you know, perhaps it is a bit of Canadian pride, if we want to call it that, <laughs> that the NHL has also started to step up its game when it comes to females being involved. Cass Campbell Pascal obviously has now become a mainstay on Hockey Night in Canada, doing both analysis and color commentary. And Olympic gold medalist Rebecca Johnston as well has been uh, has been in the studio. Yeah, that's really good to see that uh, in hockey there's some women that are starting to break through into everyday media and everyday analysis and broadcasting for certain games called commentary, like you said with Cassie Campbell Pascal. And I believe that the Flames had a game this year where it was also an all-female crew for the uh, Flames game. So it's good to see that happening in the NHL as well because we need more women to get uh, passionate about sports so that way we can further our game uh, 
across all genders. I mean, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, Pastor Brennan Dick, once told me that I would never find a woman who, even women who love sports, playing fantasy sports. And I later found out that that was false. And so it just goes <laughs> to show that, you know, there are talented, passionate people out there of all genders. And it, it's really important to give them that shot to do their thing because, you know, of course, not only do we want a, a bigger talent pool, it's just diversity frankly you know is, is a good thing and uh, i was thinking actually before you before we move on to our next topic which is also hockey so it works but mm -hmm. you know with international women's day being uh, on this monday and, and you know i'm going to step away from sports for just a couple minutes here but you know i've over the years i've met a lot of people and i've heard from a lot of people who for some reason think that gender equality is a zero-sum game that somehow empowering women means putting down men and nothing could be further from the truth yeah i don't think so you know we want to empower men and women to the same level and i think it's hard to kind of get to that point where we're the same level of, of empowerment because of history and background and and oftentimes we get stuck in ruts for certain things and we do things a certain way and that's how they've always been done and it's difficult to kind of break that mold and break that tradition. So I, I agree with you on that. And I think it's important to not try and diminish anybody, but rather let's empower people to do their best work in whatever case that may be. Absolutely. And we look forward to we look forward to seeing what these ladies can do on the 24th of March, uh, calling the Raptors. And as you said, you're going to be tuning in. I'm going to I'm going to be tuning in as well. Now. Again, as, as we alluded to earlier, speaking of hockey and speaking of breaking the mold, mm. the Toronto Maple Leafs, Tyson, a team uh, that is near and dear to your heart, and they've certainly broken the mold in a, in a relevant way recently. Yeah, it seems like we actually have somewhat of a good team this year. Which wow. Is, <laughs> so it's crazy. Kyle Dubas, the general manager for the Toronto Maple Leafs, is the fastest Toronto Maple Leaf general manager to have 100 wins. He did it in 176 games. And when I saw this, I was like, that doesn't quite make sense to me. I'm like, is that possible? I thought it was one of the old, old GMs from like the 20s or 40s or 60s when the Leafs were, you know, only around in the original six era. And no, it, it's true. Kyle Dubas is the fastest Toronto Maple Leaf GM to 100 wins in 176 games, which is absolutely incredible for Kyle Dubas, because I think it speaks to his GMing abilities, is somewhat underrated. But I think it also speaks to how bad the Leafs have been over the course of the years. Yikes. Oh, it's bad. So everybody who understands hockey knows the Toronto Maple Leafs have not won a Stanley Cup since 1967. For our American fans, friends, they're essentially the Dallas Cowboys of the NHL <laughs> in both profitability, color scheme, and recent level of success. <laughs> It's really bad. It's quite bad. We both have massive markets as well. So the comparable is, is very true and very accurate. So the Toronto Maple Leafs, they've had, you know, a lot of really tough history over the past quite a few decades now, going on five, six decades. And to share how bad it is, we all know that Leafs haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1967. Right. But do you know what's more embarrassing is that the Leafs, have one division win oh. since 1967. We're not even talking presidents. They have, We're talking about division. They have not won their division two times in 55 years. Oh my goodness. That is how bad the Leafs have been since 1967. And I think that that's really astonishing to how bad it has been for Leaf My fans. goodness. And just to give you a little bit of context on that one time that the Leafs did win their division, it was the 99-2000 season where the head coach was Pat Quinn, the goaltender was Curtis Joseph, and you had Matt Sundin leading the way for goals and points. Mm. And that was a while ago. Yes, and do you want to know who the second leading point getter on the Leafs was that year? 37-year-old Steve Thomas. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 37 years old, and he's second on the team in points for the Leafs in 2000. And it was a year where they won their division. But when you look at the standings, they were actually the fourth best team in the East. 
they were just in a bad division. It wasn't because the team was actually any good. So essentially, the petty ghost of the NFC East helped them out. Exactly. It was essentially the reason why, you know, comparable the N- into the NFL world, the Cowboys winning a bad NFC East division one year in 55 years is the equivalent to the Toronto Maple Leafs winning a bad division in 1999-2000 since 1967 and unfortunately for maple leafs faithful because they are the dallas cowboys of the nhl they have a lot of haters who take pleasure in all of these facts that you just cited and i'm sure you're well aware of that i have been mocked a lot in my life because i support the toronto maple leafs but you know what they're my team and i'm going to support them for a long time so when we get back to kyle dubas and and his hundred wins as a general manager, fastest to the to that mark for Leafs history. I find it fascinating that he did this with a coach who actually opposed him most of the time. Interesting. In Mike Babcock. Jack Han right. Jack Han reports for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Marlies. And he made a report and it was that Kyle Dubas was looking to acquire uh, this defenseman. His name is Nick Jensen. Third pairing defenseman, he's kind of a smaller guy kind of a good skater, can kind of move the puck, because the envision for Kyle Dubas is like, you know what, I want to have a fast, skilled, puck-moving third pair, so we wanted to play Nick Jensen with Travis Dermott. So Kyle Dubas says, hey, do you want a right-shot defenseman? And Mike Babcock goes, yes, I want a right-shot defenseman. So Kyle Dubas goes, okay, so we're thinking about getting Nick Jensen so that way you can pair him with Travis Dermott. And Mike Babcock says to Kyle Dubas, you can trade for Nick Jensen, but I'm not going to play him with Travis. Interesting. He's actively defying the general manager. And, you know, that reminds me of, frankly, Babcock's mismanagement of Jason Spezza, a a veteran center who scored a a lot lot of points for the Ottawa Senators back in the day, but... We were talking about this earlier as well, that not only did Mike Babcock put Jason Spezza on the fourth line, which is much more understandable due to his age, Mm -hmm. in his late 30s, but he forced him to kill penalties because that was Mike Babcock's system, even though Jason Spezza has never been a two-way center. Yes, totally mismanaged the player because Mike Babcock has a particular way of coaching. And who can blame him? He's won a lot of games. He's made the playoffs 14 times in his career. Olympic gold medals. Olympic gold medal, and he's won a Stanley Cup with the Red Wings. So he's got that credibility to kind of back him. But when we look at Mike Babcock and his desire for an NHL team, it's very clear that what he wants in an NHL organization from top to bottom is not what Kyle Dubas wanted in terms of a team and a roster and how they wanted to play. Their styles just didn't mesh. So when Kyle Dubas took over as the general manager, he couldn't just fire Mike Babcock. He was the highest paid head coach for in the NHL. So can't really just fire that guy. And then they had a full season and then 20 games of the next season. So 100 out of those 176 games that uh, Dubas had, they were played with a coach that defied him and didn't play his style and the roster and and the coach didn't match because they had two different ways of playing hockey and neither is wrong so to speak but it's clear that Kyle Dubas had one vision for the Toronto Maple Leafs and based off of what we can see now after Mike Babcock is that it's actually been pretty good for sure because Kyle Dubas has been quietly kind of an underrated general manager despite his immense criticism for possibly botching a few of those contracts. And we we should mention that at the end of the day, Kyle Dubas obviously won this battle because Babcock was fired on November 20th, mm-hmm. a couple years ago in 2019, not only after a six-game losing streak, but also when allegations of him essentially hazing his players and emotionally abusing them came out, which was a shock at least to 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 me from an to me and perhaps to you from an outsider's point mm-hmm. of view but you know with all that turmoil just bubbling underneath the surface in the locker room of the Maple Leafs it just makes Kyle Dubas's achievement that much more impressive i think it does and you know i don't want to 
say that Mike Babcock was fired because of his handling of certain situations in the locker room because ultimately he was fired because he didn't win enough games. Sure. The Leafs were not in a playoff spot when they had fired him. Like you said, they had been on a recent losing streak. Yeah. So Kyle Dubas made this decision because at the point, Mike Babcock wasn't doing well enough as a head coach. But there's no doubt, there was a report, I can't remember who, who reported it, and it was Sheldon Keefe who said to this reporter and said, when I stepped into that locker room after Mike Babcock was fired, I couldn't do anything because the team morale was already at zero. Mm. I couldn't skate these guys hard. I couldn't be tough on them. I had to really try and boost their confidence because there was no confidence to begin with when Mike Babcock was fired. So I think it can really kind of look at kind of the culture of the Toronto Maple Leafs under Mike Babcock. And there is no doubt he did change things for the Leafs and now they're having some pretty good success. But it's it looks like that he, to so to speak, what happened was is that the Leafs were a fruit. And Mike Babcock squeezed every ounce of juice out of that team that he possibly could. He did. And at the end of it, he was kind of just left with a gross rind. <laughs> well... Fortunately for all you Maple Leafs fans out there, the, ter- the team has been anything but a gross rind this year <laughs> so far. For all you Leafs fans out there, Dubas' handiwork is really showing this season. And what am I talking about? 18-7-2 in the 27 games that the Maple Leafs have played this year. And again, for non-sports people, that's 18 wins, 7 losses, and 2 overtime losses, which get you a point each in the NHL. Adds up to 38 points. Good enough to currently lead the All-Canadian North Division, five points ahead of the second-place Jets, although the Jets have two games in hand. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. We're excited about this team. We're looking to see what we can do in the playoffs, ultimately, because playoffs are what matters the most. But you know what? It's good to see the team having the success that it's having. And, yeah, as a Leafs fan, it's been a long time coming, so I'm excited. And finally, you know, if you want to take a look at some homegrown talent that the Leafs have, that if I'm not mistaken, Dubas was responsible for, you've got someone like Mitch Marner, mm-hmm. who is fourth in scoring in the NHL right now, 34 points in 26 games. Not far behind him in that sixth spot is Austin Matthews, of course, mm-hmm. with his 31 points in 23 games. And now both of these players were highly touted. Matthews in particular is a former number one overall pick. So you might be thinking, okay, how do you miss on that? Well, how do you miss on a number one overall pick? Just ask the Oilers when they drafted Neil Yakupov. <laughs> it, it happens. It does happen. And I remember when Mitch Marner was drafted, there was some question on where the Leafs were going. They had a need on defense. And, you know, to, still to this day, there was some kind of interesting conflict. About you fellas would kill for a man like Colton Pareko. I know. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have him. So there was some question on whether or not the Leafs were going to go skill or if they were going to go size. And skill was the Mitch Marner pick. And the player that went after him, which was possibly linked to the Leafs, was Noah Hannafin, who ultimately went the next pick to Carolina. But he was a big, rugged defenseman who could really play both ways. And based off of what was being reported at the time, it was Kyle Dubas who said, no, we're not picking Hannafin. We're picking Mitch Marner because he has a chance to have a great, great career. So it's kind of an interesting way on how Kyle Dubas, even though he was an assistant general manager at the time, has influenced the team today. And when you look at some of the other depth players on the Leafs, they have some really good success stories like Jason Spezza. He's, a, he's definitely a success story for Kyle Dubas. He's a new man this year. He's been playing excellent. Justin Hall, who wouldn't get any ice time for Mike Babcock because he didn't fit into his scheme, has really flourished under Sheldon Keefe and the style of play that Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe like to run in Toronto. So they've had some really nice additions and depth pieces to fill out this team to kind of build that continuity, and it shows. And you know what? There's a lot of hockey left to be played in this season, but right now the Maple Leafs are in very good shape, and they have a ton of firepower, and of course, rock, generally rock-solid Frederick Anderson in net. So he's a little dicey this year, but I we be, I hope that he can get back to that really good quality of style play, or at least he has the ability to be that. Obviously, <laughs> so, sure. but 
you know, while your Leafs are trending up, my Flames are trending down yeah. right now. It's it is less than ideal. And so less than ideal, in fact, that back on the 5th of March, we fired our coach, Jeff Ward. <laughs> and that, of course, leads us right into our next subject, Daryl Sutter. How, now, How do you feel about it? What, to be honest with you, I am very, very open. I shall we say very, very open-minded mm. about this move. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why. You know, Daryl Sutter has coached for 18 seasons. His last stint was in the was with the Los Angeles Kings from 2011 to 2017. He's won two Stanley Cups with those Kings 2012 and 2014. His overall Flames record is fairly solid as well, 107 wins, 73 losses, and 15 overtime wins, 15 overtime losses. That's obviously well above 500. And it's an interesting subplot as well because last time in Calgary, he led the Flames to the, you guessed it, 2004 Stanley Cup final. Oh, he was the coach? He was. He had to watch the refs screw up, in my highly <laughs> unbiased opinion. No, I'm just kidding. It's okay. It's highly biased, <laughs> but I don't think it's wrong. Anyways, we're, we're uh, you know, before we get too off track and before <laughs> we start running down that rabbit trail, he was that coach. That led us to the 04 Stanley Cup Final, which, spoiler alert, are the Flames lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning in seven games. And he even went on record in a recent interview saying that he has unfinished business in Calgary oh. because of that loss. And so, you know what? The man does not pull punches. He does not cut corners. He's blunt. He's hard-nosed. He's a tough Western boy, if you want to go with that stereotype. And, you know, that's really... Between that and his success... Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why I really think he might be the guy to light a fire under this talented team. I think that there are a lot of guys on this roster that will really like playing for uh, Sutter. And I think guys like Matthew Kachuk, he's going to be one of those guys that loves playing for, for Sutter. I think Sam Bennett might have a chance to get a restart, kind of a refresh in Calgary, maybe change up his game, change up his career a little bit and really kind of start to flourish a little bit under Daryl Sutter's coaching because it seems like Daryl Sutter's style plays into what those guys want to do in establishing being physical, playing hard, playing strong on the puck. Defensively. Yeah, and I think those guys definitely have a chance to kind of up their game and up their level under Daryl Sutter. For sure, and... You know, to that point, I would argue that Sutter's style may just be what the Flames need. And I alluded to that earlier, but I want to qualify that statement now. Is that, and you know what, I love the Calgary Flames. Like I, like I said, the Leafs are your team, the Flames are my team. But to be perfectly frank, I saw a lot of inconsistency mm -hmm. over their last two years in particular. And perhaps, for lack of a better term, even softness or a lack of resilience. And what do I mean by that? Well, a couple of years ago, we dropped our first round playoff series to the Colorado Avalanche, four games to one. And now obviously that that Avalanche team was big, fast, physical, and skilled. And so I don't want to take any, I don't want to take anything away from them. But if memory serves, Sam Bennett, a third line forward, let us in scoring that playoff series. And that's just not good enough. No, it's not good enough, especially from Sean Monaghan and Johnny Gaudreau. Now, I get it. Nathan McKinnon, Landeskog, Randon, that line is dominant. They are very, very good hockey players for that team in, in Colorado. But, yeah, when your best players don't show up in the playoffs, it's tough to win. No kidding. And speaking of no-shows, why don't we uh, rewind to last August? That, <laughs> uh, that game six against the Dallas Stars... Frankly, I'm glad I was at camp and I didn't get, I didn't have to watch that because, you know what? After one period, the Flames were up three nothing and they lost the game seven three. And when you're on the brink of elimination already, to have that happen to you, in my opinion, is not acceptable. Now, granted, Dallas made the finals last year and they lost to a highly talented Tampa Bay Lightning unit. So, you know, all credit is given to to our opponents, but. At the same time, you know, it's one thing to lose a playoff series. It's another one to collapse like that when you've given yourself a chance to stay alive. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's super disappointing to see, you know, a team go up 3 nothing, and you go into the intermission and you're super excited and you're super pumped 
because you know you're going to be able to fight back in this series and it's just a complete meltdown seven goals against unanswered that can't happen like at some point the leadership on that team has to stand up and say we need to start playing with a little bit of pride here and i think that's something that maybe the flames have lacked at times mm-hmm. is that element of true leadership and I'm not going to say that it always needs to come from the players. Uh, the players definitely need to have a responsibility, especially some of the guys like Mark Giordano, the true captain, and, and the assistant captains on the Flames. But I think also the coaches need to establish a little bit of some leadership during those those intermission breaks. And if there's one thing that Daryl Sutter is good at doing, it's his establishing himself and his style within every single locker room that he takes command of. In fact... You know, King's defender Drew Doughty, who is a little older now, but definitely used to be one of the best defensemen in the NHL, straight up admitted he went on record saying he was scared of Drew <laughs> D- of uh, Daryl Sutter rather when Sutter replaced Terry Murray in December of 2011, and he and other Kings players that used to play under Sutter during that champion those two championship runs, they all said that Sutter held them accountable essentially at all costs. If you made a great play, he was fair and he would praise you for that. But if you did something even slightly wrong, he would harp on that because he understands that it is not easy to win a championship, especially not the Stanley Cup, and you do need to shore up those little details habitually if your team is going to be successful in the end. And, you know, shooting it back to December of 2011, Daryl Sutter led the Kings on an absolute tear in the final 49 games of their season that year. 25 wins, 13 losses and 11 overtime losses they made the playoffs as an eighth seed and proceeded to steamroll absolutely everybody wow can't can't say enough right like that those kings teams were known for their physical play their hard-nosed forecheck their stout defensive abilities and ultimately being an absolute nightmare to play against you played a seven-game series against the Kings, and you would wake up going into that sixth, seventh game, and you would be bumped and bruised and maybe a little bit hurt, and you would just not want to get out of bed in the morning. No, and I, I'm sure there's there's a lot of players who, who, who might say what, what you did if we had a chance to ask them, but yeah, you know, and there's another thing that Drew Doughty said about Sutter that I found was particularly interesting from a Flames fan point of view, You know, he says that, you know, Sutter makes sure every little step is perfect. Without your top players being your best, you won't win too many games. And obviously that's true. And when we look at Sean Monaghan, Johnny Gaudreau, Elias Lindholm, Matthew Kachuk, these are the Flames' four best players. And at least on paper, every single one of them is a bona fide NHL player. Not Sorry, not just an NHL player, but a bona fide NHL top liner. And yet... Not a single one of them have been scoring at a point per game this year because they have run hot and cold. And in the North Division, that's not something you want to put up with for too long. No, and you know there there are some players in that top top line that maybe wouldn't be top liners on some other teams, like uh, Sean Monahan, for example. Like well, yeah, one one a two yeah he would be he would be a very very good second line center on teams that have you know a Matthews, a McDavid, Crosby, a Crosby, yeah. or a McKinnon, you know, very, very good 1B center. is 1B to A, yeah. Yeah, and ultimately, it's, when you look at Calgary and you look at the players, like, they're not underperforming what they normally get, so to speak. You know, they're kind of hitting their career averages, but the problem is, is that when scoring is up, and the North Division has let in the most amount of goals. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl. We already told you Matthews and Marner's numbers. Mark Scheifele, Bla- sorry, Blake Wheeler, excuse me, as well as Brock Besser and JT Miller. You know, we've got Edmonton represented, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. And now, granted, you know, Vancouver is struggling right now as well, but thing is all those teams have these dynamic top forwards who have been scoring at a point per game or more and to your point Calgary hasn't really been able to keep up with that so far yeah they really haven't and it's been struggling for the Flames to get that consistent performance you know you'll get a few games here and there where 
the Flames will have those spurts of really good games. Like when they played Ottawa and they put up, what was it, seven goals against Ottawa? And then the next game they lose in a shootout. Like, you can't do that against Ottawa, which is one of the worst teams in the NHL. 9-18-1, and one, and they are the only team beneath Calgary in the North right now. Right? That's a team that you have to win, and you have to win consistently against. But unfortunately, the Flames haven't been able to do that. It seems as if they're almost relying on Jacob Markstrom to carry them through games that, you know, their best players don't show up in. Now, I'm glad you talked about Jacob Markstrom, because the last point I wanted to hit here is that, frankly, Jacob Markstrom probably needs to be great anyway for Mm -hmm. Calgary to win under Daryl Sutter, because... For those who don't know, Daryl Sutter is a very defensively-minded coach. He's old-fashioned, he will not let you cut corners, and he very much believes in the meat and potatoes over the flash and dash, if I can string two cliches in a row here. (laughs) But when you look at his Kings teams back in the the 2010s, they were rarely among the league leaders in offense, despite having high-end talent such as Andre Kopitar and, and Jeff Carter, but... They were consistently in contention for the Vesna and for essentially overall defensive rating, and that's why they won their two Stanley Cups and were one of the best teams in the league for several years in, in the 2010s. And so, you know, for that to be successful, like I said, Markstrom needs to be Markstrom, and you know, frankly, that's not really a coaching issue. When we signed Markstrom, we expected him to be a top goaltender in the league. We're going to mm-hmm. need him to be that to be successful. But for me, I think, is is the question of whether or not the Flames' blue line, which has looked very good on paper for a number of years now, Mm -hmm. whether or not they can deliver. Because Mark Giordano is in his late 30s. I believe he's 38, perhaps. But he's definitely, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He is north of 35 years of age. And he's, you know, father time is undefeated, and he's not quite who he once was. You've got someone like Chris Tanev, who was a top four mainstay in Vancouver for a number of years, and Rasmus Anderson, an athletic ascending two-way defenseman. For me, the question is, will the Flames buy into Sutter's tough defensive system, which, like you said earlier, might benefit a guy like Sam Bennett? And if Jacob Markstrom can put up his end of the deal as well, it might work, but otherwise, we'll see. Yeah, it hasn't helped that Jacob Markstrom hasn't been healthy for the last couple of weeks. He's healthy now, which is good for the Flames. They need him back. Uh, David Riddick is a very good stopgap kind of starter that can get you... He's you... kind of a Thomas Grice. He's a fringe starter that is very effective potentially in spurts. Yeah, he's a he, he can do well in spurts, but you need Markstrom to be that big load carrier that you signed in the offseason. So it's good that they have him back, and I guess we'll see what Sutter can bring to the table. I mean, it's kind of you got to go up from here. There's not much more you can go down. Well, technically, we could bottom out past Ottawa, but that's not a possibility that I wish to consider, and that's not a possibility that a lot of people in Calgary wish to consider. But, you know, to, to put a bow on this point, I personally am fairly optimistic about the signing, actually, because Sutter is very proven, and I do believe that this team is underachieving, which a lot of others have said as well, a lot of uh, fans and pundits alike, and... If there's anyone that's going to be able to kick him in the butt and get him working harder, more consistently, and being mentally resilient, potentially, Daryl Sutter is most likely that man. Yeah, I agree. You know, having said that, once again, there are are a couple of uh, in-memoriams that we do... Well, yeah, we do have to tell you guys about. And first and foremost, we want to remember Chris Schultz, Mm -hmm. former... NFL and CFL offensive linemen and a very beloved figure on the CFL on TSN panels. He passed away on Thursday after suffering a heart attack unexpectedly at 61 years of age. Yeah, it's sad to see. You know, he was a Dallas Cowboy left tackle and then he went to the Argos and he was very good for the Toronto Argonauts in the CFL. And yeah, he was a very good analyst and, and the CFL released an article about him saying he had a firm handshake and a big heart. So he'll definitely be missed. You know, he was he was someone that as a fan, when you watch that panel, you noticed him because he was six foot eight and 277 pounds. <laughs> and even, you know, I think we all know what, what Shaquille O'Neal looks like when he sits down next to the rest of the guys on the NBA and TNT panel. And Chris Schultz kind of looked the same way at the end of the table with Rod, uh, Rod Smith and, and all of them. But, 
yeah, he, he was a very successful Canadian player named to the Argonauts all-time team in 2007, two-time CFL All-Star, and also played 21 NFL games for the Cowboys under Tom Landry, who's a Hall of Fame coach. So, you know, he was a, he was a humorous figure, an insightful figure to have on the TSN panel, part of the TSN family, and certainly fans of Canadian football are going to miss him. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we got another one here. As a lot of people know and been watching some sports news, uh, Walter Gretzky has passed away, and sadly he, he will be very missed. And for those who may not know, Walter Gretzky is the great one, Wayne Gretzky's father. So uh, it's very sad because he was always a fun-loving guy. He battled Parkinson's for many years, and a lot of people have a lot of stories about Walter Gretzky. You know it. It seems like if you just go to Ontario and you ask a random person about Walter Gretzky, they go, oh, yeah, I met him at the subway or something, or I got his autograph at a book fair. There are many stories about how uh, fans would run up to Walter Gretzky's house and grab a handful of grass and be like, I got Wayne Gretzky's grass. Yeah. And, And Walter would just be like, yeah, totally fine. You know, it's super cool that these people could come out and come to my house and he would regularly invite people to come into his home and, and see all of his memorabilia that he's got from mm-hmm. Wayne's years of playing hockey through minor hockey and stuff like that. So, you know, Walter Gretzky was definitely a, a man of the community. And there was a famous saying that goes around that, you know, Walter Gretzky's signature isn't going to be worth anything because he signed it so many times it's on almost everything. So. Yeah. Having said that, you know, like you said, he was a he was a good man and he raised a heck of a son. He sure a lot did. Of people know. Sure did. So yeah, we will we will miss him and you know our condolences go out to the Gretzkys as well as the, the Schultzes and all those who have been impacted by those two men. For sure. And with that being said, it is time to move on to our next topic, which sees us returning to the world of the NBA, specifically the world of the Brooklyn Nets that have added another big name to their already star-studded roster. That name, of course, is Blake Griffin, a former six-time NBA All-Star who signed back on Sunday, on the 7th of March, after Detroit spent, get this, $63 million to buy him out. Now, Tyson, why would the Detroit Pistons buy out a former six-time All-Star, and why would such a man sign a veteran's minimum contract worth about $1.2 million? The reason why Detroit would buy out Blake Griffin is because they're ready to move in a different direction. They're not ready to compete. They are last in the East for their for the standings. They are having a terrible year as far as everybody understands for the Pistons. We know that they're going to be rebuilding for the next few years. And as far as Blake Griffin goes, the Pistons decided, you know what? It's better to pay Blake Griffin out and save a little bit of money by buying him out than have him ride the bench and pay out his full contract. So they decided to do the thing, the honorable thing and say, you know what, we're going to buy him out, we're going to give him a chance to go somewhere else and play more basketball because realistically we're not going to be winning many games here in the next few years. So Blake, you go your way and we'll go ours and let's kind of just move on and move forward with our lives separately as we head in different directions. And now for the first time in, in his career, Blake Griffin is is getting ready to play a complimentary bench role on his new team, the Brooklyn Nets. And it's not just because he's playing behind Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. It's that unfortunately he is not the player he once was, and that is largely due to injuries. Now, much like we talked about J.J. Watt last week, Blake Griffin has been beat up. Mm-hmm. He has had injuries to both his knees, his back, his right ankle, his big toe. Most recently, he had arthroscopic left knee surgery in April 2019, and all of this means that he has played only 38 games over the last two seasons. All right, he is not the car-jumping, rim-attacking behemoth that he once was. Fun fact, Blake Griffin did jump over a car years ago back in the day, but (laughs) no, and you know, and again, for those who don't know, he was part of a Los Angeles Clippers regime in the early 2010s called Lob City. And why was it called Lob City? Because you have, 
you know, the point god Chris Paul lobbing alley-oops to Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan, who's now his teammate again in Brooklyn. And both those guys are massive and can jump out of the building. And it was, you know, they, they had some very exciting times uh, down in that Clippers organization back then. But, you know, needless to say, that version of Griffin is long gone. He, he's just 32, but because of those injuries, he's not a healthy 32. And, you know, his numbers, his numbers have fallen off a cliff. He scored you know, a mere 12.3 points per game in, you know, 20 games this year after averaging 20-plus for most of his career. And, you know, he he's a guy that, at this point, he kind of is what he is, just like we were talking about last week, Aaron Baines is what he is. Yeah, he is what he is, and there's not much that you can say about Blake Griffin that hasn't already been said. You know, like you mentioned, his numbers have dropped off. His rebounding has gone down significantly. His points per game has gone down for the last three years now. The one time that the Pistons made the playoffs with Blake Griffin, Blake Griffin didn't play the final two playoff games because of knee injuries. And he had off-season surgery. He missed the first ten games. Then he came back, and then he had to get a second knee surgery. So can we rely on Blake Griffin to be the old man? No, we can't because... He's simply just not that player anymore. But, you know, he relied on athleticism for a big bulk of his career. And unfortunately, he's gotten a little bit older. And like you said, injuries have taken away that athleticism. And he's not as nearly as effective as he once was as a player, which is really unfortunate. Now, the good news for Brooklyn is they obviously don't need to rely on him for offense with that (laughs) three-headed dragon that they have Mm -hmm. in their starting five. Once they all get healthy at the same time, that is. But, you know, on the defensive end, which would be sort of your area of immediate need for Brooklyn, Griffin doesn't help either. He's never been a great defender. He's never even been like an Aaron Baines, one of those potentially rock-solid post defenders. And despite being a six foot nine power forward who has great hops, he's never even averaged a full block per game in any season, which, in our opinion, is rather maddening. Yeah, it's kind of surprising when you look at it. I didn't realize how underwhelming Blake Griffin's stats were until I looked them up. You know, it seems like defensively the Clippers tried to hide him at times because he just wasn't as good defensively as maybe they expected him to. So he didn't get the blocks, he didn't get the steals, he didn't get necessarily the defensive stats that you would want. But again, you know, he's a 6'9 player, and at this point, because of what the Nets have, you know, they traded away Jared Allen to get James Harden in that massive trade with multiple teams. So they kind of just needed a body that could play basketball. A give, big body that could give, play basketball. Give them a meaningful... You could rename Blake Griffins to first name, ah, uh, last name, guy. He's <laughs> just a guy. That's what he is at this point in time in his career. So he can give you some points off the bench. He can maybe start for you and give you 24 hard minutes and get you around... 10 points a game, a couple of rebounds, and maybe show some defense against some smaller players. But I don't know exactly what the Nets are hoping for in this signing. Uh, it kind of looks like they're going for name value rather than quality of player. For sure. And obviously the counter-argument to that is they're paying a discount for him, $1.2 million minimum contract. It probably won't hurt them that much if he fails to work out and I will want to point out, however, that Blake Griffin is an above-average playmaker for a player of his size. He's averaged 4.4 assists per game over his career, and especially with James Harden being the primary playmaker now, if you can get Griffin off the bench, you know, he could provide some secondary passing and be an asset that way, but you're right. You know, if he if he wins a ring with with Brooklyn, great for him, but he certainly will be, at this point, a bit player riding the coattails of the superstars. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what Blake Griffin is here for. He's here to try and win, and that's why he took a league minimum contract to sign with the Nets. If Blake Griffin wins a ring and the Nets upset the Lakers in the finals or or the Lakers get knocked out and the Nets go all the way and, and win the championship, I would not be surprised if Blake Griffin says to his agent, says, get me the fattest contract and the most money because I've won my ring and I'm ready to cash in and then retire and I wouldn't be surprised if Blake Griffin does that but if he doesn't win a ring I think then you might see Blake Griffin kind of sign a bunch of one-year deals to try and win a ring kind of what Boogie Cousins did with the Golden State Warriors a couple of years ago I wouldn't be surprised at that at all 
for sure. And again, we will have to wait and find out how it pans out for him. But, you know, frankly, you know, it might be true to say that he needs Brooklyn a lot more than they need him because Brooklyn is filling it up at a historic pace. I think so. And, you know, hopefully that Blake Griffin can provide some things that Brooklyn needs and they can have a spot for him and give him some good minutes and he'll play more there than he would have ever in Detroit. So that's always good for, for Blake. And, yeah, I guess we'll see how it works out. And for our final topic of the evening, we want to move back into the NFL world, and we want to talk about another uh, relevant signing, but let's just say the Dallas Cowboys paid Dak Prescott a bit more money than what Blake Griffin is making. (laughs) Yeah, Blake Griffin's on a league minimum contract, and Dak Prescott is not. (laughs) Anything but. Four years, $40 a year, so that's... 160 million, mm-hmm. 126 million guaranteed. So that is most in NFL history for guaranteed money. Right, because unlike a lot of other leagues, NFL contracts are not fully guaranteed, and sometimes not at all. Sometimes not at all. Sometimes there are contracts that are 100% incentive based. Now this contract has 66 million dollars at the signing, so that's a signing bonus, which is also most in NFL history. Imagine being paid that much money to put your signature on a piece of paper. Right? Very, very tempting. I know I would definitely like to do that. Sure. (laughs) Right? So it's a very interesting contract and a very interesting situation with Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. And kind of how we look at the Dak Prescott-Dallas Cowboys situation, we need to look at see what Dak did in terms of his contract. He was a fourth-round draft pick, didn't make very much money on his rookie contract because he was not drafted very high. And that's kind of normal because you never know what players can be until a few. You years know, if I'm league. not mistaken, his rookie deal was paying him roughly about one million dollars to three million dollars a year. I might be, I might be lowballing that, but it certainly was. No, he was less than that for his first two years. He, oh, he interesting. He was under a million dollars for two years. And this is what happens when you're a quarterback in the fourth round. Right? right, and then you know the second year he was at like I think around a million, and then I think mm. the last year he was at two point one million for his rookie contract is that starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. So Dallas Cowboys definitely got a really good deal in signing Dak Prescott and with that rookie contract. And it was very clear that Dak Prescott was outperforming his rookie contract. So he wanted a big payday. And he held out. And what happened in the situation is that the Dallas Cowboys have the right to use this thing called a franchise tag. So a franchise tag is uh, a thing that the teams can do for one player every year that essentially allows the team to tag one player and that player then remains on their team even though they don't have a contract. So it's essentially giving them a one-year deal that that player can either choose to accept or not accept. And under the franchise tag, the player can still negotiate an extension, still sign the tag and then negotiate an extension. There's all these different things that you can do under the franchise tag but the franchise tag essentially it costs the average of the top five players at that one position so the player that gets the franchise tag is definitely getting uh, top of the line money in terms of what their position makes the average of the top five so that's definitely something that you know we look at what Dak Prescott got when he was franchise tagged the first time which was last season he was definitely making a lot more (laughs) in that franchise tag than he did before uh, during his rookie contract. So Dak Prescott wanted to get paid. So he got the franchise tag because he wanted to negotiate a longer term deal. And unfortunately, Dak Prescott got hurt. He had a gruesome injury and he didn't play more than a handful of games. And you know what, it was it was a freak injury. It In really week was. five against the Giants too, I remember watching that play and Prescott tucked the ball and ran and a defensive back ran up to him and grabbed him essentially by the arm and shoulder as he was trying to stiff arm him and pulled him to the ground. Now, if you watch football, you know, 199 times out of 200, that's just how a smaller defensive back tackles a bigger ball carrier. Usually both guys just get up and the the game will continue. And in some case, of course, the DB gets steamrolled like, you know, Derrick Henry. <laughs> but in this case... Dak went down extremely awkwardly, and his ankle essentially got... Dislocated. It it was folded and snapped and dislocated under him, 
very gruesome injury and of course season ending yes and that kind of put the dallas cowboys in a very difficult conundrum so to speak where they now have a quarterback who got paid a whole bunch of money on the franchise tag they're going through this situation again where they're not sure if they want to re-sign him or not but ultimately they came to this contract deal and it's a very very complicated contract so I'm going to do my best to take a few minutes and try and walk you through this contract. Indeed. So, Dak Prescott received the franchise tag last year, and what happened this year is that it was under the agreement that Dak will be franchise tagged again this year, but then he will negotiate and sign this contract that they, they decided to sign. And all this means is that essentially, in terms of words, Dak Prescott got franchise tagged a second year in a row. Now, this is important because... A, an NFL player can only be franchise tagged a maximum of three times. And the third time a player is franchise tagged, it is an exhausting 144% of the previous contract. Ouch. So to ensure that, you know, Dak's contract, uh, at the end of this current contract, which is now four years, if this contract, um, at the end of this contract, the Cowboys wanted to give Dak a third franchise tag, it would cost an exhausting $54 million for one season, David. Mm. You know, I think I got that saved up in case of a rainy day. No, <laughs> of course not. So this makes it highly unlikely that Dak Prescott will get the franchise tag no. for that third time after this contract ends. Because it's just, it's an astronomical amount of money. So even though kind of we talked about it and it said it's a four-year deal, we need to get into a little bit of the specifics about the contract. Because... Unusually, there's two voidable years at the end, if I understand, that essentially would allow Dallas to lessen their annual cap hit on this. Yes. So what the Dallas Cowboys did very sneakily is they said that, okay, we're going to make a six-year contract where the final two years of the contract are voided, which means that the player is not on the roster and there's no salary associated with this. But what it does mean is because the signing bonus, the $66 million, uh, is prorated per year. The player gets the signing bonus up front. But in terms of the salary cap structure, the signing bonus is divided each year one by one by one. So instead of having uh, what it would be if, if it was a $60 million, $66 million over four years, it would be $16.5 million on the cap hit for the signing bonus aspect versus $66 million for five years, which is 13.2. Interesting. So that's what the Dallas Cowboys decided to do. So they saved themselves about $3.3 million by having the signing bonus over an extra year. So that's why they did this. Some very interesting wizardry by the Dallas front office uh, on this deal. But, mm -hmm. of course, the elephant of the room is, well, is it worth it? Which... And the answer to that question, in my opinion, is a, is quite nuanced, to be honest. Because on the one hand, you look at Prescott's deal, and like we alluded to earlier, it averages $40 million per year, which means that he is now getting paid more per year than Deshaun Watson, $39 million, Russell Wilson, $35 million, Aaron Rodgers, $33.5 million. And in all likelihood, with all due respect to Dak, he is not as good as those three quarterbacks. And, you know, that's sort of the first counter-argument is obviously, well, you look at the quarterback market, especially in the NFL, and honestly, in a lot for star players in a lot of leagues, people get paid, and sometimes not according to their, perhaps not according to their perceived value in skill level compared to other players who signed contracts earlier, but... You know, frankly, as we as we uh, as we talked about, if the Cowboys didn't sign Dak to this big deal, they would have to franchise tag him again or just lose him, and that's not something that they're in a position to do. And other other high-profile quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen are, may, in all likelihood, sign even bigger deals than Dak in the near future. Now, having said all that, Prescott is certainly you know he's certainly no. Blake Bortles, <laughs> we'll, we'll say that. At least, you know, it, it you know doesn't look like that. He's a two-time Pro Bowler. He's thrown 22 or more touchdowns in every season except last year when he got hurt. 
He's got a career completion percentage of 66%, a career passer rating of 97.3, very close to triple digits. So those are really not bad numbers. Additionally, he has played in all 16 games of every season, except last year when he got injured. So if he can bounce back from this ankle injury, hopefully Dallas is getting a durable starting quarterback as well. But the question I want to ask you is, with all of these factors being considered, is Dak Prescott a top 10 quarterback? I don't believe he is. I really don't. And, you know, when I look at Dak Prescott as a player and as a man, he's a lovely man. He's a good guy in the locker room. He's got great intangibles. Like, he's a leader. He's got amazing character. He's beloved by the players. You know, a lot of NFL players that even weren't on the team for the Dallas Cowboys reached out to Dak Prescott after his injury this season. And I know that Alex Smith even was one of the guys that talked to Dak Prescott about recovery and what it'll take to Mr. Kind of, comeback, Alex Smith is. Mr. Comeback of the player of the Mr. Comeback player of the year. So yeah, yeah absolutely. This guy is well respected and well liked throughout the NFL and within his locker room. And I definitely think that he is kind of that ultimate professional for the team. And that definitely plays a big part in what it takes to be an NFL quarterback. But kind of what I look at when I see Dak, especially in the last two years, the year that he got hurt and the year before, when I saw and watched Dak, he didn't have great stats in the first half of games. Mm, Interesting. And what ended up happening is that the Dallas Cowboys, because they had not a good defense ended up getting behind by quite a few points in the third and fourth quarters. And that's when Dak Prescott really started to shine. Now, there are two narratives that kind of come with this. The first narrative is, oh, he's a second-half player. He's clutch. He's Mr. Rocky Balboa. Yeah, he's really good in the final minutes, and he can make that late comeback. Or there's the narrative that Shannon Sharp talks about, and it says it's empty calories because they're playing against soft defense that is basically just trying to say, you're not allowed to go down the field in one play on us. You're not allowed to hit a 55-yard touchdown bomb on one play. You're going to have to go five yards, six yards, four yards, eight yards, and kind of go down the field methodically. Right, and again, for those of our listeners who may not be big into football, what we're essentially talking about is a softer zone defense that's very conservative, that you know instead of locking defenders man-to-man or even being more aggressive at the line of scrimmage these zones are large and there's easy completions to be found at shorter range mm-hmm. but the essentially the point is like you said to hopefully make it a longer scoring drive in a game that is likely already out of reach absolutely the goal of the defense is not necessarily to stop you from scoring in those instances they're trying to make sure that you spend as much time going down the field as you possibly can so tackle them in bounds so that way the clock keeps running. Uh, things like, you know, soft zones so that way there are easy completions. But again, nothing too deep down Easy the completions, easy tackles. Yeah. So when you look at Dak Prescott's stats, a lot of his numbers came in the fourth quarters when they were down by multiple possessions. So a lot of touchdowns, a lot of yards, a lot of completions, and a high completion percentage was in the fourth quarter. And Dak Prescott was the number one quarterback by pro football focus in the fourth quarter two years ago Mm. but the dallas cowboys didn't win half their games because (laughs) because they were not in the ball game in the first half so when you look at dak prescott in in a in a vacuum it's really hard to analyze him because as a quarterback you can say oh he didn't keep you in the ball game in the first half but in the second half he brought you back in it's kind of this weird kind of dichotomy of Dak Prescott throughout his last couple of years as a Dallas Cowboy. And it certainly will make his next few years very, very interesting to watch for that reason, because like you said, he passes the eye test, not only in terms of stats, but also his athleticism, his size, his running ability, his, his arm strength. You know, he's not Josh Allen, but he's got a fairly solid arm from what I've seen. But, you know... Another factor that I think we need to briefly touch on is just that, you know, frankly, Jerry Jones, who's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, he's 78 years old and he's not interested in a rebuild. That is no secret, and that's why Jones hired 
former Green Bay Packers head coach Mike McCarthy last January without even interviewing an assistant or college coach, which that happens quite frequently when you're looking for a coach, but not in this case because Jerry Jones wanted, in all likelihood, an experienced NFL coach who would have very little learning curve to him. And again, obviously, if you look at the situation for Dallas, it's not as if they have a great backup quarterback ready to take the reins. You know, Dak Prescott is their option at signal caller. And, you know, but like you said, I, I will be very intrigued to see what plays out because at the end of the day, we, we I think we all want to find out whether these are empty calories or whether or not Dak Prescott is legitimately able to parlay some of his talent and some of his solid stats into tangible NFL success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, a big thing is is that football is a team sport. And I think last year we saw that the Dallas Cowboys as a team was really questionable in a lot of areas, and especially that defense, you know. So when Dak Prescott comes back this season, what will the team look like around him? Because a quarterback alone cannot win them in many games and make the playoffs and make a deep run. There needs to be a good team around Dak Prescott to have success as well. So I think that when we watch the Dallas Cowboys this upcoming season, it'll be really interesting to see what Dak does with this team. And I think part of what Jerry Jones will try and figure out if the Dallas Cowboys underachieve, is it because of Dak Prescott or is it because of the team? Because after all, starting quarterback is often the man who shoulders the blame in, in on a football team, but that doesn't mean he's primarily responsible for the team's struggles, like you said. But, you know, in any case, that will do it for us uh, on this particular episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. For Tyson Workington, I'm David Song, and we look forward to seeing you guys again on the draft board.